0: Hey, if you're like me, you're still missing your live sports content and it feels like it's been 84 years since we last saw a game, but we're still bringing you a show this week to try to give you something to help make it through. We found a former now retired ESPN personality that has over 40 years in the industry and we couldn't wait to talk to him. He's going to share a lot of his story with us next. This is the, we don't know sports podcast. Stay tuned. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the We Don't Know Sports Podcast, and this is Chad the Mark, and I'm actually by myself. I have nobody with me this week. Mr. Brown is on vacation. Canadian Biggie's lost in the woods somewhere, so it was just me. And instead of me sitting here for, I don't know, we average like 52 minutes an episode, you don't want to hear me talk the entire time. So what I did was I dug deep, went through all my channels, ended up finding somebody I thought had an awesome story to tell. We always watch sports and we listen to sports, but do you ever really wonder what all goes into making this happen? Well, we find a gentleman by the name of Bob Picozzi. That's right, THE Bob Picozzi. So if you ever listen to Mike and Mike or, or the Van Pelt Show or Levitard or Cowherd back when he was in ESPN, all these guys, the man who always brought you the Sports Center updates was Bob Picozzi, but he did much, much more just give you that quick little update on ESPN radio and we were happy to talk to him he's going to share a story with us and if you ever want to know the ins and outs and everything that went in to making a successful career as a sports broadcaster or journalist you're about to find out just how Bob Cozy made it happen so it was a pleasure to talk to him we hope you enjoyed the episode the interview starts now <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, joining me now is a widely acclaimed, at least to me, albeit a retired sports personality. He's a multiple time sportscaster of the year out of the state of Connecticut, a graduate of Seton Hall University, where he's a proud member of their athletic hall of fame. He has talked, reported, contributed, covered, whatever you can think of on multiple sports for decades. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Mr. Bob Picozzi. Bob, how are you?
1: I'm great, Chad. Nice to be on. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Man, I hope people just hear the voice and recognize it because I know I do right away. And for those who may not be familiar with Mr. Bob Picosi, he has spent essentially a lifetime covering the world of sports and just doing, I guess, anything and everything that, that I'm aware of that could even come across your plate. So first and foremost, before I even get into some of that, just hopefully you and your family are staying healthy. How are things for you as you're now retired?
1: Uh, things are great. Uh, it's just my wife and me at home. We have a 30, how old is Mike now? 35 year old son who lives 40 minutes away and he's healthy and safe also. We're all following the rules, the COVID rules. It's a lot easier to do when you're retired. Uh, <laughs> but I, I've been fully retired now for two and a half years. And one thing that keeps me, uh, fairly busy is, uh, I'm the president of the Picozzi Family Foundation which is a foundation that was started by uh, two of my uncles who were brothers of my dad. Uh, they were the uh, last two survivors uh, in that family. And they all lived into their nineties and they're all gone now. So uh, there was a chain of command set up. And so I'm the only uh, uh, male member of the Picozzi family in my generation. So I'm the president of the foundation and uh, we award partial scholarships to eighth grade students and 12th grade students and a Seton Hall student, uh, as you pointed out, Seton Hall is my alma mater in the, uh, in the Newark, New Jersey area. And it was just, uh, the foundation was started because my two uncles reached the stage in their life where they felt that, uh, their community and their church had been very good to them and they wanted to do some good with, uh, with uh, whatever money they had. And the choice to spend it on education was an easy one because, uh, I had an aunt who was a third grade teacher in Madison, New Jersey for 45 years. So that keeps me busy. And, uh, you know, we just finished a round of uh, awarding scholarships to students for next year. And so uh, I'm very, very proud of that foundation. And uh, I spent a lot of time with it.
0: So let me let me transition a little bit and, and talk about you. So we know that, you know, you're from the New Jersey area. You live in Connecticut now. How did you get started you know, wanting to get into the field that you eventually got into. So, I mean, were you uh, always a sports fan growing up? Is there certain teams or sports that you navigated to? Or was it just, you know, journalism? What exactly happened? How did you find your path?
1: Yes, I was always a sports fan. My dad was a, a big sports fan, and he played three different sports in high school. And I'm the youngest of three, and I'm on the I'm the only boy. So I think he was probably reasonably happy when I came along, <laughs> because he had someone to pass this on to. You know, this is back. In, I'm 69 years old, so this is back in an era where girls, you know, didn't play sports at the level uh, of participation and at the quality that we now see today. So he introduced me to sports at a very early age, and I fell in love with it. And I actually, uh, you know, I was born in 1951, so baseball was far and away the big sport in the country back then. And I used to play baseball every day all summer with my buddies, and we all were convinced we were going to be baseball players. <laughs> of
0: course. Uh,
1: <laughs> and then I figured out uh, when I saw... When I noticed that the the coach of every other team in our little league kept walking intentionally the guy in front of me to get to me. ouch <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, I, uh, I I figured out maybe I need to reevaluate this next Mickey Mantle dream. Uh, so I knew at that point, I you know I didn't have the talent and what it took to be a professional athlete, and yet I very much wanted to take advantage of this passion I had for sports and figure out how to spend my life taking advantage of it. So the idea of becoming a play-by-play announcer first came to me when I was 10 years old and I never outgrew it. So that was my dream when I was 10 and uh, I, I pursued the dream all the way.
0: So what, what was your first paying gig you ever got doing play-by-play?
1: Doing play-by-play, being paid, it would have been uh, my second job out of college for a radio station in Westerly, Rhode Island, W.E.R.I. My first job was uh, at a a beautiful music station. So we didn't do any sports there. Although I did con the general manager into believing that we had uh, a tremendous interest in sports among our listeners. And he uh, agreed to let me do a daily sports commentary, which was totally in totally inconsistent with the rest of the programming. In hindsight, he was a very nice man. I think he realized that. and I think he was just doing a, a young kid a favor. But my next job, I, I you know, fortunately, I, I was at the first job for only three and a half months. And the next job was a great second job to have. It was a great, a heavy local news station. And uh, I took a uh, major in communication at Seton Hall. And I took all of the journalism and news writing and speaking courses uh because i you know i was told then that you need to uh you know uh, diversify yourself uh that uh, your chance of getting a sports only full time job right out of college was uh, virtually non-existent so you need you needed to have another skill so mine was doing news so my second job i was uh, became the news director and the and the morning drive news anchor but I also did all of our play-by-play. So we did high school football and high school basketball play-by-play. So I started doing that when I was 21 years old, I guess, in the, the football season, the fall of 1972.
0: Wow. I mean, that's that's a pretty good second job. You're not lying about that because you hear all these stories from people who are always struggling to kind of get their foot in the door. But I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. Being diversified definitely helps you out, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it did. and uh, And, you know, All those courses I took at Seton Hall, uh, I mean, they they helped me. I I was able to use those skills that I began developing in college. I was able to use them literally every day of my 46-year career. And, uh, you know, whether it was writing news for the newscasts that I did on radio for uh, five and a half years for two different radio stations uh, or, you know, writing uh, local TV sportscasts. Or the ESPN Radio Sports Center uh, scripts, uh, you know, they all involve the same skill. It's just you know the content was sports instead of news, so they all went back to uh, you know those days when I learned that. I really think that in the media, the most important skill of all is to learn how to write, and so uh, I had a lot of good teachers and uh, had a lot of practice.
0: So you mentioned ESPN, and, and obviously they're the, the mecca when it comes to sports coverage. So how did you get noticed by them? Where were you at at the time, and how how did that all came to be?
1: I stumbled into it, Chad. Um, my So my, my first three jobs were in radio, local radio. And then my fourth job was for a uh, TV station, the ABC affiliate in Connecticut, WTNH in New Haven. And uh, I was there for 19 years, and I did the sports during the 6 and 11 o'clock news. And after 19 years, they did not renew my contract. So I was 46 years old, and for the first time in my career, I was at a crossroads, and I had to decide what I wanted to do next. And I decided that I really didn't want to continue anchoring sports at a local news station. Uh, It had become less fun over the years. ESPN had a lot to do with that. Uh, you know with their hour-long sports centers it uh, it made it less desirable for the viewer to you know rush to their TV at 11:20 at night to see the local TV sports cast and you know, it was impossible to compete with uh, ESPN with the amount of time and resources and their scope so uh, what I decided to do was uh, make the transition to become a, a full-time play-by-play announcer at that point and uh, so I live 13 miles from ESPN and uh, you know, and I've lived there since 1989, including the last eight years I was in that local TV job. So I knew a lot of people there. So even though I had made the decision, I didn't want to continue being a local TV sports anchor. I thought, you know, it's silly for me to not at least see if they are, they have any interest in me. ESPN that is as a sports center anchor. So uh, I knew uh, someone very well and he was nice enough to set up a, Interviews with four of the uh, you know the big uh, kingmakers there in one day, <laughs> and when I got there, I the first thing I found out was they all knew who I was, and if you think about it, you know why wouldn't they? Because they worked at ESPN, so they lived in Connecticut,
0: right? You're and on they TV. Worked in the TV
1: industry. <laughs> they worked in the TV industry, so what do you think they do when they get home? You know, they click around the dial like we do, and so you know, I when I was on the air for 19 years, so yeah, they saw me. And the first guy uh, that I met that day asked me who I was meeting with. And I rattled off the names. And then uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. And he said, are you planning on meeting with the boys in radio, meaning ESPN radio? And I said, no, Uh, should I? And he said, I think you should. you want me to set that up? And I said, sure. So my last stop that day, I met uh, Drew Hayes, who's the general manager of ESPN radio, and Len Weiner was the program director they had no idea that I had six years of local radio experience, uh, plus my four years of college radio experience at the beginning of my career. So they felt that, uh, you know, made me attractive to them. So they kind of hired me on the spot and I started doing uh, sports centers right away on a part-time basis. And it was sort of the classic example of being in the right place at the right time, because 10 months after I started, they launched the network 24 seven and going back to that meeting that I had uh, with that first person, he obviously knew that. So that's why he asked me what, whether I was planning a meeting with the boys in radio. Cause he knew that they had a need uh, for people with my skill set. So, uh, so I literally stumbled into that. I had already started, uh, getting some freelance play by play gigs and, and that football season in 97 was the first season I started doing play-by-play football on TV and that winter was the first season I started doing play-by-play basketball on TV. So I, I did that. Uh, well, I, I anchored the sports centers for the next 18 years and I did the, the play-by-play on TV for the next 20 years until I retired.
0: Now I I vividly remember the sports center updates all the time with your voice on it, especially, uh, back in the Mike and Mike days. I feel like that was, mm-hmm. am I, am I accurate? Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yeah, the first well, the first 14 of those 18 years, uh, it was during Morning Drive. When we first started on October 12, 1998, when the network launched 24-7, the very first uh, voice heard was mine. We signed on at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, and I did the 6 o'clock Sports Center. And then the first show was called the ESPN Radio Morning Show because Mike Greenberg wasn't part of radio then he was already working on the TV side. Right. And so a guy named Tony Bruno, I
0: remember him.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Tony was one of the uh, most well-known voices of ESPN radio, which started as a weekend only operation in 1992. And by the time we hit 1998, uh, they were signing on the air on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time and going off the air at 3 a.m. Eastern time. And so Tony was a prominent voice. And so they they uh, assigned Tony and Mike Golick to do the the ESPN Radio Morning Show, and uh, Mike had some uh, uh, radio uh, experience and some TV experience also. But you know Mike played the NFL for nine years. He was a captain of Notre Dame, and then Tony, uh, after one year, left. He, he was very unhappy. And so then they uh, you know then they really they auditioned about twelve different people on air auditions to work with Golick, and then. They decided upon Mike Greenberg. So yeah, I I worked so I worked with Goldick, uh for 14 years on that show, and and with Greenberg for for 13 years, and and then they uh, they moved me to uh, well, a bunch of things happened. The digital radio became more important, and uh, uh, so they stopped doing the uh, the radio on air sports centers on the radio in the morning. Just started doing them digitally. And they felt that it was uh, more useful to have me work at different shifts so that all of my uh, sports centers could be on on the radio. So then I switched and and did them during the uh, uh, the Colin Coward show. And after Colin left, it was the uh, Dan Levitard show, uh, followed by uh, the show with Scott Van Pelt and Ryan Priscilla.
0: So pretty like to me, that's like the Hall of Fame of radio shows ESPN has had. So that's a that's an awesome list to have on your resume there. So I know you were doing the the sports center updates and, and everything on the radio, but you also were doing play by play, right? When when did right. you start doing play by play exactly?
1: Well, uh, you know, I, I had done a, a ton of it on radio, uh, you know, starting at Seton Hall, and uh, and by the way, when I was at Seton Hall, the the men's basketball games were not on commercial radio, so uh, their fan all of Seton Hall's fans were stuck with us, us meaning the college radio, the college team. radio, and, and by all the right. way. And by the way, backing up a step further, uh, the radio station, Seton Hall, WSOU, its reputation is the reason why I chose Seton Hall. It's also the reason why Bob Lee chose Seton Hall, by the way. Bob kind of grew up listening to WSOU because he lived in the shadows of the campus in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Bob is exactly four years younger than me, so we just missed each other. I graduated in May of 72, and Bob arrived in September of that year. Uh, You know, we subsequently, even though we didn't work on the same projects at ESPN, you know, we worked there at the same time for years and years. And and he remains a very close friend of mine. Uh, But uh, so I had all that radio play-by-play experience. And then uh, I, in addition to doing the high school football and high school basketball, play-by-play in the radio, I did two years of Yale basketball and three years of Fairfield basketball. But during those 19 years in local TV, I had very few play-by-play opportunities. I had some. I did a season of UConn football on the radio uh, when their radio play-by-play person left in the middle of the season to take a local TV job. So they were kind of stuck and they asked me to do it and I was glad to do it. And then the TV station I worked for, uh, we did when Central Connecticut State University went division one of basketball. We, the first two years, we carried a couple of their games each year. We used to carry the state high school basketball championships, but I didn't have a lot of that experience. So, uh, but I started doing TV play-by-play on a regular basis. Really, even before I left the local TV job, like I did a UConn Nit game uh, in March of 1997 when I was a short timer. They had already told me they weren't renewing my contract, and my contract was up June 30th. So I was, you know, stuck there on the air for three more months. But they let me do the the Nit game for another uh, broadcast affiliate, and I also started doing tennis for uh, ESPN International. I did the French Open that year. I did French Open for many years, but the first year was while I was still in local TV. But then that fall, uh, you know, I left at the local TV job in June, and that fall I started doing college football, play-by-play on TV. And that winter, you know, starting November 97, I started doing college basketball, play-by-play on TV. And then, and as I said, I did it, I did it for 20 straight years.
0: So, when you were at ESPN, though, that was that was double duty, right? So you're working for the radio side and the TV side.
1: Yes. Yeah, it was. And it was really like having, for seven months each year, it was really like having two full-time jobs because one had nothing to do with the other. Right. It really didn't. Uh, so, uh, you know, college football would start up at the beginning of September, and my last basketball assignment of the year was always the, uh, the second round of the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament. I did that event for years. So for those seven months, it was like working two full-time jobs. Uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to complain, uh, but you know, it was—I would say—average was, was probably thirteen-hour days. And over those seven months, I had maybe a dozen days off. And ultimately, that drove the decision for me to give up radio when I did, because uh, you know, I figured out a couple years in advance that when my contract ran out. I would be 65. And, you know, and I asked myself, do you really feel you need to do both? (laughs) And I decided, no, I didn't. So, uh, you know, I I liked the radio uh, sports center anchoring a lot, but I love play by play. It was always my first love. So I decided to retire from my radio job when my contract expired in September of 2016. And then I did uh, two more years of, uh, of TV play-by-play after that. But I mean, uh, you know, there were a lot of times, obviously, where I had to take time off from my radio job to do the TV play-by-play. I had to take time off to do games. I had to take time off to travel to do games. And sometimes I had to take time off just to prepare. And so my radio uh, employers, uh, the people that I reported to, were great with that. They always they always said yes when I asked, and I? You know, can I do this? You know, and I, I did a good job of communicating with them in advance so that they knew when I would need the, the time off. And so they, uh, you know, because they, you know, they still needed to have someone do it that day. you know. But they were great. And in fact, I was considered a radio employee. Uh, so when I had to do my expenses, you know, which we did, uh, you know, uh, online to an online program they went they would they would be routed to the ESPN radio general manager bo Davenport, and he would always chuckle he would say uh, you know when he would drive into work in the morning and he didn't hear me on he knew that i was off doing the play by play gig and he said but i never knew what the gig was until i got your expense reports
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know i never i never knew where you were on the uh, you know the second Friday in December until I got your expense
0: report. <laughs> right. So uh, let me ask, let me ask this when it comes to like getting the assignment to do those, those games, how far out ahead of time do you get notified? Because I guess it's a two-part question because I'm also interested in just what's that preparation look like and how much time and effort do you spend, you know, say for a, a football game that you have to do play by play on?
1: Well, let me, the first answer your first question is, Most of the time you would get a lot of notice. There were exceptions where you would, you know, be the last minute type thing. Uh, But they they were rare. They changed the way they would do the college basketball schedule over time. Originally, you would essentially get your whole schedule before the season started. But then they changed it and they would give it like maybe a month out or two months out because they wanted to have the flexibility to move people around. I mean, for example, they wanted they wanted to have Dan Shulman and Jay Billis do the best games all the time. Right. And so, you know, you had an idea in the summer, what the best games would be, you know, but it wasn't really in until you got into the season. I mean, yeah, things can expected, change. <laughs> right. In the summer of 2017, who expected Loyola Chicago to be in the final four on March, you know? So, uh, but as far as uh, how much time it would take, uh, I always like to answer that question this way. One time, you know, Mario Cuomo was a brilliant orator. He just gave great speeches. And uh, he gave a very famous speech on abortion at the University of Notre Dame, uh, famous in large part because of the venue. And so he was a guest on Imus in the morning one day, and he asked him, how long did it take? Does it take you to prepare for speech? And his answer was, he says, well, I'm in. Um, you prepare to give the speech right up until it's time to give it, (laughs) you know? So that's my answer uh, for the play by play. you, you, you keep preparing until time is right out and it's time to go on the air. And so for football, you know, certainly the prep for football is, is multiple times uh, longer than it is for basketball because of the very nature. There are 22 guys in the field at a time for football. There are only 10 on a court for basketball college football rosters have – some of them have 90 guys on it. Right. And, you know, in college basketball, rosters have between 12 to 15. So um, I always used to like to – we all do what we call our boards. You know, that's what we have in front of us when we're doing the game, and everybody does it differently. So I always did my boards for for football. I always did them by hand because I always used to like to have – like be a one-stop shopper, have all the information I felt I would need on the board, so that I wouldn't have to go rifling through papers and stats to put my finger on a piece of information that I needed at a given moment in the game. So um, it, I, it worked for me. I mean, the, the answer is you, you got to do it in a way that works for you. You're the only one who has to understand the board. Right. You're the only one who needs to make high, you know, heads or tails from it. So, uh, you know, so by doing them by hand, I am not, uh, the neatest person in the world when it comes to handwriting (laughs) or printing, but I can print very neatly if I take my time. So it would take me all week to do it. But I mean, you know, you would start working on it on Sunday, you would do some work and you would do work every day. And I would make sure my boards were finished by the time I went to bed on Wednesday because Thursday morning was my memorization day. That's the day that I would commit to memory a hundred and twenty names and numbers, uh, you know, 60 on each team. And then that way, uh, you know, it would take me about three hours to do that without any interruptions. And then once I did that, then it was just a question of going over and over those names and numbers. I don't know, pick a number 50 times, 50 more times, maybe between say noon on Thursday and the time that, you know, you're kicking off at noon or four o'clock on a Saturday so that's for football. Now basketball would take much less time, but the problem with basketball is the I mean, I was I only did games on Saturdays. I remember one time I did a game on Thursday for college football. Uh, so you know, you you always had a week between games. Basketball, that's not the case. Sometimes you would hit a stretch. Well, I mean, I've done four games in one day several times for basketball at a tournament, uh, and you know, many 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 times did double headers but you would inevitably hit a stretch where you you would do four games in five nights. So you would have to be very organized in how you would prepare. So I would lay out the whole season and I would identify which days I was going to prepare for which games, because you certainly couldn't wait until you finished the game to begin preparing for your next one, because there just weren't enough hours to get that done. So you'd be working on multiple games at the same time. But for basketball, I did them all on the computer and it was much easier and much quicker.
0: So the illusion that that our wonderful sports play-by-play uh, personalities get to just show up and call the game and have a good time—that's that, not really a fair assessment, is it? There's a lot of homework that goes into it. Well,
1: you know, the thing is, you, you never bump into other play-by-play guys, <laughs> uh, <laughs> except you know when you would have an annual preseason uh, get-together uh, that you know ESPN would summon everyone for preseason planning purposes. So I couldn't tell you. I mean, we would compare notes. When I first started doing it, I picked the brains of a, a buddy of mine who was the radio voice for UConn football and UConn basketball. I asked him how he did his voice for football, and he gave me a copy of the template that he used. And I always use that throughout. I mean, most of the guys do it on the computer now. And some, you know, there are services that you can pay for. And, and some guys working into their contracts so that, you know, ESPN is paying for these services where people will do your boards for you. I never quite understood the logic of doing that because uh, the mere act of making out right. the boards yourself, you know, you're well on your way toward comprehending what's on them, you know. Yeah, so yeah, It's uh, like when
0: somebody tells you something, you might remember it, but if you write it down, right. you almost always remember it.
1: Well, no, I mean, you know, these trips, they were all business trips. They really were. So, I mean, I, I always used to joke that uh, when I retire, I should go back and visit all of these campuses that I never really saw because all I saw was the stadium or the arena and the route between the airport and the hotel and the hotel and the arena and back to the airport. So, you know, all my time on those trips would be spent either at the arena or at uh you know in the hotel i mean game days for basketball are very busy because you're you always go to the game day shoot arounds for the two teams and usually the home team you know all all the nutritionists will tell you that the best time to eat your pregame meal is four hours before game time so the home team would always uh have its one hour shoot around from five hours before tip to four hours before tip and the visiting team would precede that. So, you know, you get up in your morning and I'd be first of all I'd be up late the night before doing homework and then get up in the morning doing more homework and then heading over to the arena, you know, and you'd be at the arena for two, two and a half hours to attend the shoot around and talk to the coaches. And then you had a very condensed amount of time because from the time you left the arena, you had to be back in the arena in, in two hours to be there two hours before the game starts. So in those two hours, you're going back to your hotel. You're trying to uh, absorb the information you got from the coaches and work it into your, you know, your your game notes and whatnot. Uh, You need to get something to eat. You need to shave and shower. And in my case, I always wanted to make sure I took a power nap. You know, that was just part of my routine. And then it was time to get in the car and go back to the arena. I hated it when the hotel was not near the arena. I hated that. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's there's work involved. I mean, it's just like athletes. You know, Uh, somebody like uh, Steph Curry. You know, he doesn't just show up for the game and be able to shoot the way he does. It's just hours and hours and hours of practice and preparation.
0: Did do you have a a favorite game that you called or a favorite event that you were able to do or uh, just anything that stands out like? Man, that was that was the one that was my favorite.
1: Well, in terms of a moment, I you know I'll never forget the first time I did a game on network TV. I had been doing games for ESPN regional television uh, for years and years. They would do uh, regional games, which would be syndicated. You know, particularly the Big East Network. Almost always, the game would be broadcast back to the home market of both teams and often other markets in the league if the teams in those markets didn't have games that night but the first time i did the game on national tv uh, was a, a an ncaa women's championship second round game in 2002 in austin texas so i had been doing games for espn and for other outlets uh for five years well this is my fifth year of doing it and this is the first time so i i was well aware of the fact when i walked into the irwin center in austin texas that night that i was doing a game on national tv your preparation's no different but you know that was a moment i'll never forget and an interesting thing about that night is uh, texas played ucsb and one of the players on ucsb a senior who was playing the final game of her career was a, a young woman named katie christensen and then maybe six years after that, Katie started doing games with me and I probably <laughs> did about 20 games with her. We became very good friends. She's now the sideline reporter for the Sacramento Kings and we remain close friends. But, uh, I, I remember I did, uh, I did an America East men's basketball championship game and it was Stony Brook at Albany and Albany had a young name, uh, a young man named Peter Hooley and he was from Australia. And, uh, he, between the time he decided to accept the scholarship to play at, at Albany and the time he actually left Australia to come to the United States, his mom was diagnosed with cancer. And at first he wanted to stay home and she said, don't be ridiculous, you know, go chase your dream. I'll be fine. So when he was a senior, his mom really, really the condition, her cancer got, uh, got worse and worse and it was time for him to go back home. So he took a leave of absence from school and he went back home and he, he literally sat by her bed in her in her hospital room for for sixteen days until she passed away. and then he you know he took some time off and when he came back to school, his dad and sister came with him because they felt he would need that support and then he came back to school and after about a week, his dad and sister went home because they realized he had a great support system at Albany with his teammates in the student body so. Here it is. Uh, they're playing in the Americas Championship game. And obviously, that's a one big, one bid league. You win the championship game and you go to the NCAA tournament or you go home. And he hit the game winning three pointer with about four seconds left in the game to win the championship. And, uh, you know, the, the, the stands emptied and they, the fans carried him off the court and somebody had an Australian flag, and he had it draped around his shoulder. And I, I did the game with Tim Welsh, the former coach at Providence, and Tim interviewed Peter after the game, and Peter had the Australian flag. Right? So that that one kind of, you know, because of the storyline, I mean, you know, like the old line, who wrote that script? Right. You know, you can't make stuff like that up. So that one, you know, that one probably has a more vivid vivid. Uh, image to me than anything else because of the circumstances. You know, games are like, games are only as good as the storylines are. And the best best games are the ones with the best storylines.
0: Oh, absolutely and I, and I guess for you it it gets an extra layer added where you know the the part of the job is you're there all day, so you're talking to the coaches, you're you're at the shoot arounds, you know you get all or I don't know. were you really doing that for the that was the conference championship game though, so you know that one that was just kind of the combination of uh, did you call the rest of the games of the tournament out there?
1: uh no, i I only did the final, but oddly enough. I, I did the America East men's and women's basketball package for nine years uh, when I first started doing TV play by play. And uh, and part of the package was you would always do the semifinals of the men's tournament, but you wouldn't do the championship game because that was on ESPN. And they would have, uh, you know, the ones I were doing it were for ESPN regional television, but for ESPN, ESPN would do the game and they'd bring in one of their own guys. And so, uh, you know, I look, I understood the business, so I never resented it. Right. And then all of a sudden years later, I became that guy who would swoop in and get to do the championship game after not having done any games in the league all season long, you know? Uh, and then I, you know, I also did the, uh, the women's the women's tournament, but, uh, you know, you know, we called it champ week at ESPN. It was always fun. It was always fun to do that. And I actually did the Americans championship game. Four years in a row, and you know, I think in many ways, those uh, mid-major leagues—the ones with only one bid and with all the pressure in the world uh, oh, and all man. everything at stake—I think I think those are the best games because I mean, you know, if Duke winds up playing Carolina in the ACC championship, they've already played twice before, you know, <laughs> and they're they're both going to the NCAA tournament. And the reality is, whoever wins that game it probably doesn't even affect their seeding, but you know, for the America East, it meant everything. The winner, the winner would go on to the NCAA tournament. One year, uh, you may recall it was Vermont, Vermont upset Syracuse in the opening round.
0: Well, that's um, why that's and, why March Madness is the greatest thing ever in sports. And it, it, you're, I think it starts it with those games right there that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. And, and, and of course, um, you know, I guess two seasons ago, Virginia won the national championship. Well, what happened the year before that? <laughs> right. You became the first number one seed to lose to a sixteen seed. And it was the America East champion, UMBC University of Maryland, Baltimore County. They're the team that beat them. So yeah, those, uh, so it's the atmosphere is great. The championship game is always played in the home floor of one of the teams, uh, rather than at a neutral site. So look, I, after doing big East games for years and going to the big East tournament and covering the big East tournament, when I was in local TV, you know, it's tough to be the atmosphere at Madison square garden, but you know, when you go to Patrick gymnasium in Burlington, Vermont, and there are 3000 people literally hanging from the rafters, <laughs> uh, it's just a different, it's just a different kind of atmosphere, different in a good way.
0: And they're they're right on top of the court there too. They are. They are absolutely. So let me, let me ask you another question about, of all the places that you've been to call a game, who's got the best digs? What was the best setup? Like the, just the, for you to be able to come in there and call the game as far as just how they took care of you, maybe more specific to football because of the press box aspect. Like who had the nicest setup? Wow. The nicest setup.
1: Well, for football, I did a lot more FCS games than I did FDS games. And out of all the places where I did FCS games, I would say uh, JMU, James Madison, had the best setup. They, <laughs> yeah. I'm I, I, I'm not answering that because of what I'm about to tell you, but it is true. You would show up to do uh, an FCS playoff game at JMU, and the TV booth would have a nameplate on the on the outside of the door, and it would say uh, it would say ESPN. Uh, Bob Pecozzi, Matt Chatham, <laughs> <laughs> and that was you know, the only place that ever had. you go to other places. And it would have the nameplate, uh, you know, on on the table that you were working from, but not right. on the outside of the door. Uh, but no, it, it's just a, a great vantage point. Uh, but, but I mean, I, I did. I had the opportunity to do about twelve University of Massachusetts games when they first made the jump to FBS. And they played their home games at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough yeah. with the Patriots play. I, I remember that. So we got, to, we got to do the games in the same booth where, uh, you know, Jim Nance and Phil Sims would be there the next day to do the Patriots game. <laughs> and the booth is cavernous, and the booth at Gillette Stadium is located, uh, all of the broadcast booths are located just above the first level. So you're not way up at the top of the stadium so you're elevated so you have a great view and you know you really can't do football at field level but you're not so far up where the game is just a rumor you know uh, so that was great that's probably the best setup at Gillette Stadium although the same setup exists at MetLife Stadium where the Giants and Jets play but only the network TV booth is on that level right above the first level of the seats all of the other broadcasters, all the radio broadcasters are in the main, pre- you know, up where the main press box level is at the top of the stadium. And that is way, way <laughs> high up. And the higher up you are, the more you have to rely on the monitor because you, you just can't see as well. It's like but watching that electric setup,
0: football. <laughs> so there's electric the best football setup games. would be
1: uh, Gillette Stadium because that booth was probably three times the size of the booth at MetLife Stadium. Uh, but for college basketball, I mean, a lot of a lot of them were saying, which just, you know, it would be right. more about the atmosphere or the reputation or the aura of the arena. So, you know, being a kid from New Jersey, you know, I never got tired of going on the air and saying from Madison Square Garden. Oh, yeah. So I would, I guess, the answer is, you know, I I never enjoyed doing a game more than I would do uh, enjoy doing one from Madison Square Garden. Now, the loudest arena I was ever in. And that's a good thing too, because you know the atmosphere is better. It would be the University of Dayton Arena. It was uh, really? the loudest I've ever been in. Just great, great atmosphere. Well, there's a reason why they have the first four there every year. Yes. Dayton is a tremendous college basketball city. It really is, and it's it's a great arena. It only seats about ten thousand, but it is so loud, and it's just uh, it's you know Carrier Dome is great, you know for a different reason, you know because it's so big. Right. And, you know, everybody's wearing orange. And when Syracuse has has it going in the game, that's amazing. But, you know, there's a lot of other, you know, I did more UConn games than anything else. And Gamble Pavilion is a great atmosphere when, when UConn's got it going, you know. Um, so, and I also, I, I did UConn women's basketball play-by-play, their local TV package for 13 years. So I certainly did more games at Gamble Pavilion than any other arena by far. You know, I probably did. I don't know. 300 games, Gamble Arena, the Gamble Pavilion, just guess off the top of my head.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that'd be hard to list at your favorite if you were there so much though. <laughs> you, you know, you, you kind of get used to that maybe, but right. But you, right. and you also got to call women's UConn basketball for all those years. So I imagine there wasn't too many nail biters or close games there. No,
1: there weren't. Um, now, keep in mind, we did the local TV package. So, their games against the best opponents we, we didn't get to do because they would be on network TV. Now, I, you know, I also did a bunch of Yukon games on ESPN, but you know that I only did one Yukon Notre Dame game in my, in my life. Uh, you know, I never did a Yukon Tennessee game, uh, but yeah, uh, very few were, were uh, close, but I would say the most memorable one that I did for Yukon was one and memorable because it was close They played at DePaul. It was senior night at DePaul. And UConn, Rutgers was very good. And UConn had a one-game lead over Rutgers with two games left. You know, they didn't want to share the Big East title. They wanted to win it themselves. So they were playing catch-up all night long. And it was a situation they were down by two. Renee Montgomery, who has played in the WNBA for years now, although she's opting out of this season for the WNBA uh, because she wants to spend her time... uh, working on uh, social injustices. Renee got fouled shooting a three, and she was an 80% free-throw shooter, and she missed two of the three. (laughs) She made the first to cut the lead to one, but she missed the second, she missed the third. It was kind of a long rebound, and the ball was batted around, and a DePaul player controlled it and passed to another DePaul player who started dribbling the ball up the court, and it looked like she was going to dribble out the clock. And so we're sitting right at midcourt, So I'm looking to the right and I'm I'm thinking, well, you know, UConn's going to lose this game. And then just peripherally, I see like a whoosh go whizzing by me at a a million miles an hour. And this UConn player who did not give up, uh, caught up to the DePaul player, stole the ball from behind, called timeout in the same instant. And UConn went out, you know, got the ball and wound up scoring basket to win the game by one. And that player was Maya Moore.
0: Okay, and
1: uh, and and Maya is one of the greatest players in women's basketball history. And uh, you know, she's the leading scorer, the second leading rebounder lead UConn history. She's the only UConn player ever who was a four time first team All American. But that play sort of typified her career because Maya has off the charts athletic ability and basketball skills and then on top of that she has this incredible motor you know that's the kind of thing where nearly every player wouldn't bother chasing the ball because they would say well the kids got the ball they have a one-point lead and they're only five seconds left in the game and the kid's 30 feet ahead of me you know <laughs> they would say you know don't have lost the game but you know my was one of these kids who just uh would never give up. remind me of the story of, you know, if I said to you uh, Bobby Thompson's home run, you know what I'm talking about, Chad? Uh, the,
0: the shot heard around the world.
1: Exactly. Well, a uh, little known story, Jackie Robinson, of course, is the second baseman for the Dodgers. So, you know, it was a walk-off home run, although no one called it a walk-off home run. Then, uh, Dennis Eckersley coined that phrase after the Kirk Gibson home run in the 88 World Series. But, you know, it's pandemonium at the Polo Grounds and the All the Giants players are waiting at home plate. And Jackie and the Dodgers all, you know, dropped their shoulders and they knew the game was over, except for one. Jackie Robinson actually ran to home plate and was trying to look between the legs of all the Giants players to make sure that Bobby Thompson stepped on home plate. (laughs) And it wasn't until he saw him step on home plate that his shoulders sagged. And then and only then did he concede that his team lost. So, you know, not many players have that within them. Uh, but Maya Moore was one of those players, and I'm sure you're familiar with what she just did recently. She took uh, a season off uh, from oh, the WNBA yeah. to uh, uh, to try to uh, rectify an injustice because a friend of a family member in Jefferson City, Missouri, where she's from, uh, had been convicted of a crime and thought he was wrongfully convicted of a crime. He was sentenced to 50 years in jail and was 16 years old and he served 26 years and uh, she worked on that for uh more than a year and they uh and the verdict was overturned because they they introduced some evidence which had been uh hidden and um and the prosecutor recently decided not to retry the case and, and the man uh His name was Irons. I can't remember his first name. He just got released from prison. Yeah, a week
0: or two ago. I remember seeing all that. You know, one of the
1: most remarkable stories I've ever heard, and I like one of the greatest uh, uh, women's basketball players ever did this and put her life on hold uh, to do that. But, you know, if if you know Maya, you, you wouldn't be surprised at that because everything she touches turns to gold. She's just one of the. She, she might be the greatest winner in the history of women's basketball because she won two national championships at UConn, two Olympic gold medals, and four WNBA titles. Well, when, plus
0: when, high school championships. When, you, when that's your motor, it doesn't matter if it's on the court or off the court, and, and that's that's proof right. right there. Right. Let me ask you one final question before we wrap up because I, I feel like I came across this, and just because the times we're in right now and we know – I think most of us are hoping that live sports is on the horizon and almost you know back in some form, although there's still a lot of challenges out there. One of the things I think I came across was maybe back you know several years ago. Did you get involved in like some remote broadcasting with ESPN, or is that a more common practice? Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it actually started when I mentioned earlier that I did the French Open for them. That was for ESPN International. And ESPN International, I would say 98% of their games are done that way where they don't send the talent to the event because it would be cost prohibitive to, to fly your talent oh, around sure. the world to do all these tennis and soccer matches. So I did a ton of tennis that way where you're calling the game from a, off a monitor. And, uh, and, uh, I also did some NBA games that way for ESPN international. I did some international basketball in the summer that way. And, uh, Argentina was playing in one of the games and there was this, this, uh, young player and, you know, who I had never heard of at the time who was left-handed kind of herky jerky motion. And I remember thinking, boy, this guy's pretty good. His name is Manu Ginobili. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's how I discovered him. And, uh, so then I don't know, like maybe, Five six years ago, ESPN, you know, for cost saving purposes, decided to do some games that way, and I did a bunch of them. Uh, you know, you're in a you're in a studio in a booth, a large booth, and you have. Uh, I think there were four monitors. The largest one was very large. I mean, we we wish we could have that at courtside when we're doing a game, but we couldn't <laughs> because then nobody behind us would be able to see. And then there would be three other monitors. One of them was always on the scoreboard. And then one was usually on each bench. And then we had one member of our person. Well, obviously, we had our own people there running camera at the event and technical people there. And there had to be a, uh, but, you know, instead of a production truck at the event, the, the control room at ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut was the production truck. And then we would have one person there who would be in contact with us. And that person would be, uh, but in the booth, you know, I'd have the guy who would do color or the woman, woman who do color, sitting next to me on one side, and the person doing stats would be on my left side, just like he would be courtside. And the stats person on a headset could communicate with the person that we had in the arena. And that person in the arena essentially was there to do whatever we wanted him or her to do. And in my case, you know, it was uh, it was most helpful for him to just let us know right away whenever there was a foul who the foul was on Uh, because, you know, several times a game, you'd get screened out because the dimensions of the TV screen, you wouldn't be a hundred percent sure who took that corner jumper from the far corner, you know, where you couldn't see his number. And, uh, and some uniforms were brutal. Uh, Like I mentioned, the university of Dayton, their uniforms, you know, that there would be dark blue and red and their numbers just did not, translate well on tv and that was trouble and uh the, the biggest challenge was you had no way of gauging what the uh the crowd level was uh, the noise level was in in the arena and so uh you know when something big would happen if you would go crazy uh but the i mean we had the arena mic but you know i couldn't tell what it was from where i was <laughs> sitting and, you know, so if you go nuts and the crowd doesn't, you sound you sound like someone who's not there.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you got to match the uh, intensity. So that was,
1: and then the other problem is uh, the, when you're at an event, you know, you frequently would have access to the officials. During a timeout, you could call an official over and they would explain something to you. Or whenever, as they would always say, if something, they would always say pregame, if something funky happens, one of us will come over and explain it to you. Well, that couldn't happen because you're not there. Right. So you know there were so there were pitfalls, but you know maybe one of the greatest uh, compliments I ever received was I did a triple overtime game that way between Richmond and George Washington, and late in the game, uh, a buddy of mine, Bob who used to play at Rutgers, coached at Rutgers. And uh, he did games with me uh, at ESPN for years, and then he left and he's been doing games for CBS, CBS Sports Network, and he's done some for Fox and the Big Ten Network for years and years and years. He did the first and second rounds of the NCAA events, trying to for CBS for about 10 years. He texts me late in the game, and he says, boy, you're on fire tonight. And then during a the commercial break, I saw it, and I texted him back, and I said, do you realize we're not at the game? <laughs> and he didn't know. He said, no. And so you know that was a great compliment because we weren't there and, and he thought he thought we did we did a great job. But you know that's it's my understanding, at least for Major League Baseball, the broadcasters for the visiting team are all going to do the games that way. So for example, the Yankee games, as you know they're on the Yes network and they're on WCBS. But when the Yankees are on the road, John Sterling and Michael Kay, Sterling and Susan Wall on the radio, Michael Kay, and who's ever working with him that night on TV, will be calling the games from a booth at the YES headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. So they're going to, uh, uh, you know, they're going to get, but you know, a lot of the World Cup soccer is done that way.
0: Right. When,
1: when, when ESPN had the domestic rights to the World Cup soccer, when the event was in South Africa. I believe we only sent two announced teams to South Africa, and the rest of the games were called uh, remotely from Bristol, Connecticut. So uh, there, there's an art to it, but uh, you know ESPN really provides you with as much help as you possibly can get. So you can, you know, you, the way you go about preparing for the game is identical, except you don't go to the shootarounds because you're not there. But, you know, instead of talking to the coaches at the shoot-around, we'd set up conference calls and talk to the coaches. But, you know, your, your means of preparing for the game really would be identical.
0: Well, I guess we're going to get a, a little bit more taste of that here as the, the rest of the year hopefully unfolds with live sports returning. But uh, outside of that, Bob, I got to tell you, man, it was, a, it was a pleasure talking to you. I love the stories. I, I love the insight on, on kind of how coming up and getting an ESPN and, and everything that went into it. And I hope you're enjoying retirement. And you know what? Hopefully it's not the last time we talk. You know, I'm sure there's probably more stories I could I could dig out of you if you ever got the opportunity
1: well chad it was my pleasure i enjoyed it very much and uh, anytime you'd like to have me back i'd I'd be glad to do it
0: i can't wait bob it was a pleasure and uh, hopefully talk to you soon buddy all right chad thank you be well all right right, you too Guys, I got to tell you, it is nice to do a podcast show and not have to talk the whole time. Bob has so many stories. And in fact, once the interview was over, I ended up speaking with him for almost another half hour. But a lot of those stories and conversations we're going to have to put on the back burner until we get him back on the show. Hopefully live sports will come back soon enough and we can definitely get Bob back in here because he has seen and done so many things that we'd like to hear about. But in the meantime, we're going to hope for the next week that the bubble doesn't pop on the NBA, that baseball will start on time. We are just a hair over a week away, maybe two weeks tops, 23rd, 24th. We'll get baseball back. The NFL, it's still out there. We'll see what happens. Anyway, we'll be back here next week for a show. We do have a baseball guest coming on. that has got a great story to tell. So I can't wait for that. So make sure you tune in, subscribe to our show, follow us on social media, do whatever you got to do. We're just trying to help you get through this summer and hoping sports come back eventually, because we're all tired of it, but we're here to try to help you make sense of it. At least pass some time before we can get back to normal. This has been Chad, the Mark with the, we don't know sports podcast. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Stay safe out there.